All right. Jared, I think we're ready. Jared back there. Mm -hmm. We're ready to go. All right. Well, thank you uh, guys for coming for the uh, Esther series. We were just talking about how this seems like uh, um, number 27 in the Providence series because of how much this book is about God's providence and uh, and well that's if there we would love it if if it is because that's such an encouraging topic and so really looking forward to this Papa would you pray for us and then we would love for you to get busy on some background material if there's anybody that loves some history and some background it's <laughs> Papa Fred and uh, and he has uh, a bunch of just good stuff before we get into the 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 meat of the matter we're looking at 10 weeks Lord willing and um, and there's 10 chapters, so that works out pretty well. Father God, just thank you for the opportunity to, to gather here in the uh, choir room. Uh, this brings back fond memories of Romans and other studies we've done in this room. And I like it in here because it's, it's kind of close and kind of intimate. And uh, I feel like we're all together in here. Um, and speaking of all together, uh, you, uh, some of the commentators and some of the historians uh, uh, question Esther of, as far as uh, where is God in this story? Uh, well, I would contend that you're all over the place. And I hope to reveal that and hope we can reveal that this afternoon in your word and how you spoke uh, through pagan kings even. Uh, to restore and protect your people uh, in the midst of, uh, of evil, in the midst of those that would uh, annihilate the, uh, the Jews and the uh, strain uh, that would ultimately uh, produce the Messiah. And uh, I'm thankful, Lord, that we can talk about this today. And be with us. We need your spirit. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Papa, you know what? Before you uh, spill the beans on the history, would you, Scott, maybe read all of chapter one, sure. just because that's the main event here, and uh, then that'll give us an idea just for, uh, to, to, for Papa to run with. Sure. Esther chapter one, uh, starting in verse one. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the pre people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. 
On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mamukhan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and set first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukhan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Amukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Oh, thanks, Scott. Yep. Scott practiced those names over the weekend. Oh, no. <laughs> Thank you for helping nice me with try. those. Yes. Papa. I, I, I think I'm, I'm more excited about this study almost than, than any we've done recently because it's like Jerry has already alluded to, it is God's providence in overdrive. It demonstrates his uh, command and control of every event that happens in, in our lives, including these exiles. And uh, if, if you would indulge me for a very short period of time, for less, probably five minutes, I want to just give you in Scripture or demonstrate in Scripture and frame why Esther suddenly appears on the scene now. Um, and one of the most remarkable, and we're going to talk about literary uh, techniques in, in Esther, and one of those is reversals, how one thing seems to happen and then there's a reversal. We'll give you some examples as we go along. And how this is one of the most remarkable reversals in the history of the Jewish people. Uh, and it was owing to God. Uh, near the end of the exile uh, of Israel, turning the heart of pagan kings, kings, men who did not know God or even have a relationship with him to help the Jewish people. Now, this didn't already, always happen. Remember, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Uh, he didn't help at all. Um, so this un unleashed a sequen sequence of events in God's province that would restore the Jewish captives to Jerusalem and in doing so, among other things. And, and that's the 
turning the hearts of kings. So God, just think about this. God answers part of the prayer that Solomon prayed 500 years earlier when the temple was dedicated. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you give them to an enemy, so they're carried away and captive to the end, the land of the enemy, grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. And we see that in Esther. God's evidence is the truth of Proverbs 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, for he turns it wherever he will. So the, remember that God used Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king of Babylon, as his instrument of judgment against the Jewish people because, among other things, his people had sinned by their idolatry. God later raises up the Medes and the Persians to bring judgment on Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian kingdom by Cyrus the Persian overthrowing Babylon in, five, in the year 539. Now, this... This fits together like a hand in the glove. Because we, we know Cyrus's name is mentioned 24 times in Scripture. In Chronicles, Ezra, Isaiah, and Daniel as being the liberator and the uh, helper of God's people. Um, we know that from Cyrus 1, Ezra 1, one through three, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all the kingdoms and put it in writing. Now, that writing is in the Cyrus cylinder. I mean, yeah, Cyrus cylinder that is in the London Museum right now. And, and these subsequent kings of uh, Persia, after Cyrus died, accessed that cylinder to verify and authenticate that he did say this. Uh, so over 150 years prior to the, new, uh, the Jews' return from exile, now this is prior to their return, Isaiah records an incredible prophecy in which God promises that the Jewish exiles in Babylon will be released and return and rebuild the temple. And it's too good not to see for yourself. So if you want to turn to... Um, Isaiah 44 with me and, and begin with verse 24. Now, uh, please bear with me. I think this is just exciting to read. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things and who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the sign of liars and makes fools of diviners diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Note that this prophecy is given over a century before Jerusalem was destroyed. So this Isaiah is talking about before the city's even destroyed, he says he's going to rebuild it. That's our God. That's our provident God. And then in verse 27, he says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. So he's calling this pagan king his shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, 
Cyrus was not even born for another 150 years when this prophecy, prophecy is issued by Isaiah. God just plans ahead in his providence for his people Israel and beloved, and he does the same for us, for you, you and I. Chapter 45, 1 says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I've grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I'll break in pieces the door of bronze and cut the, the bars of iron. I think this refers to um, Cyrus's captivity of Babylon in 539 and how he did that with relative ease. That was the night of the Belshazzar feast when the right handwriting's on the wall mm. and Cyrus breaks in, captures Babylon and, and sets. It, he did this in 539 and 538 and issues, he issues the edict to go back home Just, and, and that he will fund it. Pretty amazing. Um, he says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. Uh, he, he told Cyrus that he wanted Cyrus to understand it's the Lord. Um, so he speaks to pagan kings, even though they don't know him. He even says, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by, your, by name. I name you, though you don't know me. So this is how God uh, turns the hearts of pagan rulers uh, to help us. So the story of Ezra, uh, Esther fits between the first return uh, led by Zerubbabel and the second return led by Ezra. So that's how Esther kind of fits in. She fits in between Ezra and Nehemiah right in the middle under the... Uh, Persian king Xerxes. I'm going to call him Xerxes. That's easier to say. That's easier. Ash, ash, uh, the blue letter Bible says uh, Ahash Verush or something yeah. like that. <laughs> I don't think I can say that. I appreciate your Russian uh, <laughs> intellect there, your dialect. Well, no, no, no. no. Ash, 519? Is that what we're talking? 519 BC. So we're talking 20 years later. Is that about right? Yeah, that's right. Well, the temple was actually finished in 515. Okay. Yeah. So this is kind of where we're, all right. Yeah, so that's kind of that, that frame right there. Well, he's, Esther was uh, uh, Xerxes' rule for about 20 years. Yep, good. So. That's great. Scott, what's your take before we dig in or should we dig in? Yeah, I mean, I can give the what I think. That it was. Yeah, I want to hear it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Esther... Uh, Everyone knows that God's name is not mentioned in Esther. I mean, I think it's the big point that people will emphasize over and over again, not mentioned. So the question would be, why? Why would God inspire this book of Esther to not have his name in it? Well, he could have easily included his name. Certainly, I mean, he, he's sovereign over Scripture, and so he would, he's, he's inspiring it. He could have easily put his name in there. So the question is, why? Why would he not have his name in there? And Alistair Begg, I think, gave the best answer of this. It may be the most obvious <laughs> answer, because he didn't want his name in the book of Esther. I think that's got to be right. If he wanted it, he would have put it. So he didn't put it because he doesn't want it in there. The question is then, okay, why does he not put it in there? And I think Begg just said, maybe to teach us something, to teach us that in the events of life, when God is apparently absent, he's not. When God appears to be most absent in your life, trust me, he is at work. And I think that's just, if we could just grasp that from this study, I think it would be a huge benefit to our lives going forward. When we think God's not there, he is. He's always working, even when 
the, I quote, seemingly mundane days of life. He's always at work, always, always, always. And to use Spurgeon's illustration, I'm kind of tweaking it a little bit, but Spurgeon would say you go to a art gallery and you look at portraits on the wall. He said some portraits are done so poorly, you have no idea who it is that this portrait represents, so you need the name at the bottom. He said, oh, okay, that's who this is. I have no idea who this is so bad. Okay, that's who it is. But he said some portraits are done so well that you know immediately who it is. He said, you don't need a name at the bottom. You just, that's King George or Queen Elizabeth. You just can tell, man, that is just like them. He said, in the book of Esther, God removes his name from the portrait, as it were, but we know God is so clearly at work that we know it. We know God's at work. And Beg just said, when you go through Esther, you can see, oh man, this is God. This is God. This is God. This is God. I mean, you can see it again and again and again. I think we'll see, we see it here. Like Vashti, she doesn't come there. We don't know why. It doesn't matter why not, but God is sovereignly overruling this because Esther must be raised up. And so that's just one instant where you're going to see God at work, God at work, God at work. And I think uh, that just to get us started. Yeah. Yeah. No, really good. Papa, anything else there? Well, it's just, and it's framed in the context of this rule of the Persian empire. So God raised, God allowed all this to happen. These, this, this empire lasted for 230 years, which is a long time for pagan empires. It, it, it uh, extended all the way from India to Greece down to Ethiopia. So that's a big part of the chunk of the world. And that included Israel. I mean, that included the present-day Judah. Uh, so... It included the whole known world uh, uh, at that time. And it was one of the largest empires ever. So, uh, you know, I'm not making uh, a big deal of Persia. God used Persia. God used the king of Persia to serve his people. Yeah. Matthew Henry. And to uh, ultimately allow Esther to do what she did through Xerxes. Yeah, certainly the Lord's hand of providence all through there. Matthew Henry said the particulars of Esther are not only surprising and very entertaining, but edifying and very encouraging to the faith and hope of God's people in the most difficult and dangerous times. Kind of like Scott saying from Alistair Begg, when we don't see God's hand, he, he's certainly there. We cannot now expect such miracles. Can we not expect them to be wrought for us as they were Israel when they were brought out of Egypt? But now we can expect in such ways God here he took to defeat Haman's plot so that uh, he will still protect his people. And I think you just see this. Now, this Xerxes is an interesting uh, customer. When you look at these first nine verses, um, what strikes you from from this guy? What And I, in just an initial reading or in my first seven, 57 years of life, I did not realize in those first nine verses how many times it talks about what a bigwig he thinks he is. And well, he thought he, a lot of himself. Oh, man. You know, the hundred, what, what stands out from those first nine verses? That hundred day, 180 days of, uh, of celebration where it must have been that everybody in the country got to come on in and get in on a little bit of the craziness, and then the seven-day drunken brawl after that. Um, Papa, what, what do you get from those first nine? Well, he was, uh, uh, I guess, somewhat of a party animal. Um, you know, he, he had uh, some uprisings in his empire in, right in the very early days, and this is before his campaign uh, to Greece. So there was a time of relative peace, I guess, and he just wanted to throw a big party. And maybe that was a way to 
gin up support for his uh, soiree into into Greece later on, in which he was defeated. But I don't know. But it was six months is quite a long time. It's a long time. And then it would have to take place in a time of relative peace because you can't have a big party like that and and during warfare. Tell us about 127 providence, provinces from India to the Upper Nile. That is a lot. It took four capitals to run that place. Four capitals, that's right. And and uh, there was uh, Ekbatna. I don't know if you've heard of that. That was the original capital that um, Cyrus uh, captured when he overtook the Medes and became the Persian <coughs> Mede Empire. Uh, there's... Uh, Pasagardia, uh, which is actually where Cyrus is buried today, and all the other Persian emperors. There was Persepolis, another capital, as well as Susa. Now, Susa's important because it take, that's where Esther takes place, and also Daniel was in Susa. And the tomb of Daniel is today in Susa. So, no, that's... that took four capitals to handle that big empire. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a lot of... And so he didn't think a lot of himself, and he was uh, a big deal in the day. Scott, what, when you think, I read a, they, one of the commentaries said, it was interesting the contrast between the Persians and the Jews here. You know, they're so, they're so rich and extravagant, the Persians. Yeah, I mean, I think even, somebody said that, like, I can't do the Russian accent that Fred did, but uh, King Ahasuerus, <laughs> or King Xerxes, like his name is mentioned a bunch of times in Esther, 190, 190 right? times. That's what Alistair Begg said. It 137 verses or something. Yeah, it's, you it's know, fun. he might have written Esther. Who knows? Maybe, you know? Yeah, he <laughs> almost or at least voted for his name a lot. Yeah, and and he appears to be powerful. Like on the surface, you begin to read, oh man, this guy's a big deal. He's, he seems to be really in control. He's got all this power, but really, it's going to be shown to be not so much. And we're going to see it right here with, with, with Vashti's uh, saying, I'm not even going to come. She, he can't even control one person. Yeah. But, but God's not mentioned. The Jews seem to be like a nobody, like no power or whatever. But really, God is behind them. And I think to offset the two of them where God's not even mentioned, it shows even God's reign so much more powerfully against on the surface. It looks like he's so in control and everything, but he's not. God's yeah. name is not mentioned at all. And yet he's the one who's in sovereign control. And yeah. I think just thinking that as you read through Esther, God versus Xerxes. Isn't that something? Xerxes 190 times is mentioned. God's not mentioned. Xerxes thinks he is in control and isn't. God doesn't even get mentioned, but he's in complete control mm -hmm. of the whole thing. What a contrast there. And, what a, oh, go ahead. And Jerry, excuse me just a second. And, and also the Jews that we're talking about, these are not the Jews that came back with Ezra and would ultimately come back with Nehemiah or Zerubbabel. These were Jews who made the decision to stay uh, there. And, uh, you know, Jeremiah told them when they went into captivity, build homes, have children, plant gardens, and contribute to the welfare of the country where you're being held captive. And they did that, and they were very successful in doing that, and the majority of the Jews stayed behind. I don't have exact numbers, but there was only 50,000, Mark told us, I think, that came back with the... Uh, Zerubbabel originally, and then with Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah. So most of them stayed in Babylon, I mean, stayed in Persia. Yeah, it's very interesting. And, and I think there's some, some application here that we're 23 minutes in we need to get to. One of the commentaries said, Xerxes, he's a buffoon. He's not nearly in control as he thinks he is. And, and it said kind of like us. 
right? Don't we think that we're in control of our normal day? And yet, God's the one that's, that's really in control. And, and it was kind of convicting to me. How often do we scramble about, try to make situations better, make decisions, uh, maybe that are shady at best or just plain ridiculous at worst? And, you know, that's kind of the way we see here. He does. The Persian king is flamboyant. He's out of control. God, the true king, is silent, but completely in control. The Roman government and Jesus, you know, you think of that same way where it looks like the Romans are in control, even through the crucifixion, and we see the Lord Jesus. So that, you know, couldn't it be the idea that we even see the way uh, that's going to happen um, starting here in Esther. If there's anything we've learned from the Providence series, even when it looks like God's not working, and maybe even especially when it looks like God's not working, He is working completely everywhere um, and at all times. I think I think that's for sure. So, like Scott said, the queen here um, doesn't go by His commands. I would like to look at one verse I found um, especially interesting. Verse 8. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Once the orders are given for that to happen, it sounds like the uh, social media nowadays, right? You do you. Once that's the the rule of the day, then you know it's going to be And anything goes. Yep. And it did. And it sounded, I mean, terrifying. But that was what he did. So you see at the end of the seven days, which was at the end of that 180 days already, this is a special seven-day feast or, you know, kind of drinking fest that they want to bring out. He wants to bring out the queen. And uh, and she won't come. She refuses and, uh, and that causes him to not only has he lost control of his wife, he loses control of his temper. Once again, not nearly in control and makes it a big deal to ask these seven guys that are hard to pronounce their name, what do we do? What do we do with her now there? Scott, what's, the, what's kind of the take home from that that you get? Man, Papa, why don't you start us? Well, you know, he is, he's indecisive. I mean, she won't respond he thinks he is controlled like jerry said and and she won't respond so and and we don't know exactly why but uh he's got these princes uh seven princes i think that that are uh i guess his advisors mm-hmm. and and so the he consults them because he doesn't know what to do and then he seems to abide by whatever they go by go yeah. by rather than make decisions himself he's indecisive well, and he might have been a little bit inebriated so that maybe <laughs> he needed some advice. What wouldn't you say? It's interesting because we say we don't know why she said no. And that's true. But we do know, like Scott said, why she said no. Because that was God's plan. And God's plan is to bring Esther on board here. And uh, and that's the way to, to make her queen. Yeah, I did just come back again because it's the main point again that I think this this one guy just said, one commentator said, Esther is a book that supremely teaches the providence of God. As we study the book, we discover that God is everywhere at work in every situation throughout the book. He's the principal actor, et cetera. But you read this, even the Jew is living in this time period. 
there's this crazy party, 180 days, and there's this seven-day party, and they're going to get this edict about the queen. They're going to be like, what does this have to do with their lives? Like, how, like, where is God in all of this? So I just want to read this from this, this one commentary real quick again with the same point that he's going to make. He says, Notice, however, that none of these events would have, been, have seemed significant to the Jewish community in Susa at the time. A changing queen, who cares what those pagans are doing? What has that got to do with the price of fish in the market? Only with the benefit of hindsight is it possible to see all the intricate details of God's plan working together for the good of his people. So also in our own lives, we may well have no idea what God is doing. He may seem hidden and remote, refusing to answer our prayers and to give us what we so earnestly ask of him. Wait. The end of our story has not yet been told, and who knows how the pieces of the jigsaw that at present seem to have no logical connection with one another will ultimately come together. Even though we cannot see God acting, it does not follow that he is not doing anything. God's work is not all slam-bang action. Sometimes it is a quiet faithfulness to his promises in the seemingly ordinary providences of life, bringing about in the hearts of his people what he has purposed. And I think that, again, I can't get, get away from it in this chapter, is that's how God is at work. So often in our own life we think, what is God doing right now? It's seemingly ordinary. Just days are just going on and on and on and on. You don't really know. And this Puritan John Flavel said, providence is, be- is like a Hebrew word is best read backwards. And I think that's so, such good yeah, advice. Good. When you are in it, you may not know exactly what God is doing, but later you can look back and you can trace God's providential working. Any of it, we could all spend time going around this room, talk about how God, I just mentioned my dad because I remember him from a sermon when he first was going to go into the ministry he got interviewed, and I think they said he was too funny. Like, he, he got declined because he was too funny to enter the ministry. They turned him down. And so he had to do all these odds and end jobs. Like, all these, he's done, you can talk, he got fired from a job, like, packing stuff. I mean, just all kinds of jobs he did. And, you know, where is God working in his life? He wants to do ministry. He's got to do all these odds and end jobs. He worked at a gas station, all these stories he's got. But he did this Bible study uh, a few years before he ended up getting a job. He, the one guy is in this Bible study who sees my dad's gifting. This guy can teach the Bible. My dad develops a friendship with him. Then the guy leaves his life. He doesn't see him for years, like two or three, I don't know, four years maybe. This guy disappears. Providentially, he ends up at this church called Dorville Presbyterian Church. They're looking for an associate minister. This guy says, Bob McAndrew, he can preach. Like, he can teach the Bible. He's got real gifting. And that's what led, like, to my dad getting his first pastoral job. But it's like, in the moment, what, my dad's like, what, what, you know, what's going on? But, and here's this one interaction. And that's when we look back, we can trade. And I just think it's a good exercise to do. I mean, I think yes. regularly we should look back and think, you know, where was God working in all these areas? And I mean, we could go around the room and I can get emotional about it, just thinking about God's yeah. providence. I mean, yeah. even bringing you and Amy together, how we, you talked about this recently. Yeah. Like, if you don't break your neck, Amy doesn't. That's one thing. Yeah. I mean, just amazing. And then, and you're right. Wouldn't it be fun to almost do that? Take the top 100 events in the last 20 years and to say, this led to this, led to this, led to this. And I like the idea of reading it backwards. That's so good. Think of the last year for you and Olivia, Scott. If you thought about this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, go back to Michael, you know, and you just say, give us your Elizabeth Elliot quote because I need to hear this three, day, three times a day. Yeah, God is always doing something, the very best thing, the thing we would most certainly choose if we knew the end from the beginning. He's at work to bring us to our full glory. Yeah. It's so true. It's so I true. And it makes you emo- it makes worship and thanksgiving exude from you, especially if you think through yeah, big thing. I even think about a year ago was one of the hardest periods of my life. And what was God having me study? Romans eight. Like what yeah. better chapter to study than Romans eight going into that? Because he knew I was going to need those promises to be secure, to be strengthened through that. But that's just one example. You could list literally hundreds of yeah. these and just you just you're filled so with we wonder. Were in Romans 8, for maybe someone that maybe didn't remember that, we had been in there bef- 
before Liliana found out, before you guys found out, maybe a few weeks? Yeah, I mean, I mean she was already feeling badly, I think, when we yeah. were in Romans 8, but before we knew, yeah, it was... But we, I was so that was on your mind? On my mind, fresh on my mind. Like, even in the hospital the first day, it was Romans 8, it was Piper Romans 8, it was flooded in my mind, going through my mind about, you're, you're more stable and secure than Mount Everest if you stay in the promises. So it was like, stay in the promises, and that... Had, Providentially, God gave it to me. I mean, what a gracious gift that he, that he, that he worked to, for having me to study that. Yeah. yeah. So good. Amazing. So, so this week, don't you think there's going to be times that it just looks like God's sort of absent, for a lack of a better word, and it's not the case, not for the believer. Once again, he is working every event in the life of every believer always perfectly for your good, for his glory most of all, and you see that, and we have to believe it whether we see it or not. I don't, it's living by faith and not by sight, right? Believing what we don't see in the circumstances. But the circumstances are going to be perfect. So we have to just work on our attitude. I think that's the, usually the problem, Papa. What it's helpful for me, too, to go, again, I don't want to uh, spend too much time on Scripture, to go back to these prophecies, too. How he's already mapped out that he's gonna gonna destroy. He's gonna rebuild the city before he even destroys the city. How he's gonna raise up the liberator before he's there even captured, and then he's gonna do it. And then he how he works through a succession of four Persian leaders to b- rebuild Jerusalem, including the temple and the altar, and restore his people. Amazing. Yeah. No, that that. Sure I'm just going to read one more thing, just piggybacks on that. It's another commentator. He said, let's not be so quick to dismiss the mundane, even the dark and worldly details, as if God were not sovereign over them all. God is working, even in the avarice and greed and lust and pride of Xerxes for the glory of his name and the salvation of his people. Esther 1 aims to help us learn to take the long view, to wait and read the providence of God with hindsight, with the benefit of knowing, at last, what God was doing in those long dark days when you could not see his hand nor discern his design. Esther 1 is a lesson in trust, asking us, will you rest in the goodness of God even in the darkest of days when his purposes are obscured and unclear? And I think that's just the big point that's repeated again and again, and I think we just need to hear that. Because so much of our life is just kind of quote-unquote, average days, yep. and we want to trust God that He is at work. And I think in eternity, we're going to know more. It'll be wonderful just to find out exactly how God worked in, in incredible ways. You know? And the mundane, so much God does in that, doesn't He? And I think most of us, what would you say, 98% of our life is lived there. Mm-hmm. Like the day in, day in, day, in, day, day out. out. Yep, absolutely. Papa? Well, you know, and, and Esther's name uh, Hebrew name was Hadassah, but her Persian name was derived from the Persian word for star. And I don't know whether that's a, a goddess or, or what, but you think about stars. Stars, you mentioned dark days. You can see, you really see stars on dark days. You know, the, the really pro astronomers want to get out on a really dark day when there's no moon so they can look at the stars. So Esther rises like a star out of the mundane. We'll talk about this as we go, certainly. But wouldn't you think it just hit me to say, the Jews, had they not gone through what they will go through at this time, which, you know, had to be horrifying there for a while, the edict that they're going to die um, and, you know, Mordecai going to Esther in a, you know, uh, almost a panic or a urgency. But when they come out of this, imagine their trust in the Lord. That's a oh, whole different absolutely. than had they not gone through 
this trial. So these trials are good for us continually as well. I think you would say, look at verse 13. Um, then the king said to the wise man who knew the times that for this was the king's procedure toward all that were vexed in law and judgment. The man next to him, and then it gives the list of all those guys, the seven princesses of Persian and Media, uh, who saw the king's face and sat at the kingdom, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Xerxes delivered by the eunuchs. And then the one man stands up and says, we're going to have trouble, right? This is going to spread. If we let her do this, then everybody's wife's going to go on us, right? Nobody's going to say what we say anymore. So there's a little bit of, uh, what would you how, comment on? Sexism? or Yeah, I would say. And, you know, once again, maybe due to just being men or maybe due to being drunk men, but they make a quite a decision here, which once again, the commentator said, this shouldn't really be a that were given edicts about this. This right. is a civil problem. This is the man and his wife. And this then all of a sudden a, it becomes a This is not a, a statute state. law. This is an edict. And apparently they couldn't reverse these edicts. And that goes back to Hammurabi. And, and they actually had found some Ham, Hammurabi codes in some of these old capitals. And so the Medes and the Persians have a history in Mesopotamia uh, with law and that type of thing, that edicts and those types of things couldn't be reversed. Now, statute laws, you know, passed by the um, uh, princes and all uh, were law, but, I mean, were could be changed, but not edicts. Like. And so later on, that's why the Jews have to get another law, or that's why he has to issue another law that's so right. they could protect themselves because he sure. couldn't take away um, the first law. It was interesting, um, again, Alistair Begg said they dug up some old stuff about Xerxes and it, something that he had written about himself, and it was really, I should have um, written it down, it was really, he went on and on and on about how great he was, you know, in his own description of himself. Well, I don't want to get ahead of the game, but after his defeat uh, at in in Greece, he comes back and in commentaries as well as history records that he spent time on his harem, his last and building his his capital at Persepolis. So <laughs> that's a man who doesn't have enough to do. Um, he spends time on his harem and building his uh, capital or at Persepolis. Yeah, good, Scott. Yeah, I mean, even there, I just think, like, this is an embarrassing thing for the king. He, he doesn't want this to get out everywhere, and yet he gets out everywhere with the edict. Yeah. Everyone knows that she didn't come. Like, it's just preposterous. He could have kept that somewhat no, I know. secret, but yeah. But now, it's for sure, it's going to get out there everywhere. Yeah. And, and even this guy, like, begged things. Maybe he got the short end of the stick and had to come up with what they're going to do. I don't know if he rose up and said he wanted to do it, but, yeah, I mean, just. Yeah, and, you know, just to, so that we're reminded of it right from Scripture here, Verse 18, this very day, the noble women of Persia and media who have been heard, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order, that's what you're talking about, Papa. These are the things that can't be reversed, right? Right. Let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, 
so that it may not be repealed. That Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes and let this king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And, ironically enough, that's going to happen. There is a queen that's going to be better than, than her in that way. Um, so, when the decree was made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast. And, and once again, you see, when you read this, and I never noticed it before, how many times is it going to emphasize how vast the kingdom is, how powerful Xerxes is, it's over and over and over and over. And again, not accidental. I love the wording of Scripture. And every word is meant there for, for us to um, uh, appreciate, I think. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king uh, did as Mimukin proposed, set letters to all the royal provinces. There you like you say, Scott. Now everybody knows, to everybody's providence in his own script and every people in his own language, every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So going forward here, um, how about some closing thoughts? This sounds like a social justice movement like we yeah. talked about in a few months ago. Um, you know, he he's, he's taking credit for uh, this his his position and his power, but he had nothing to do with this. He inherited this mm. this existing kingdom. He did he did not expand it. Now he did fight some wars, but he lost those wars. And really? So he's not nearly as oh, no, no. as he thinks. No, he is. no. He's on. In fact, his losses uh, they they say contributed to the um, uh, ultimate demise of the Persian Empire. Now, it lasted for a while longer until Alexander the Great came in. But, uh, no, he was not a star in the leadership role. Yeah. Once again, you know, just that we have a, a right judgment of who we are the under God's providence. Scott? Yeah, I just think this is another sort of application. This, this guy said, in Esther chapter 1, we are being invited to view the world and its values from a new perspective. The book of Esther wants us to stop being dazzled by the trappings of earthly glory, by wealth and prestige and power. In fact, it wants us to recognize that not only is a life lived in pursuit of such things empty and foolish, it is ultimately laughable. We are meant to laugh at Xerxes as a way to teach us to laugh at ourselves and all the temptations of a world that fixates on what you have, what you wear, what you do, who you know, where you went to school. The author of Esther is laughing at the ridiculous spectacle of Xerxes who does not realize that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things in the hope that the realization will begin uh, to dawn on us, too. And he, this guy just said, we live in a society that routinely elevates the trivial, uh, and so we shouldn't be dazzled by the power and pomp of the world. I think it's another application point to take home. That's really good. Yeah. And, for, and always dazzled by what the Lord's doing. Always mm -hmm. keeping in mind uh, the great promises, Scott, you're talking about. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All things are going to work together for good. Because he loves you, because you've been called according to his purpose. He who gave us his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Nothing can separate us from the, the, love, the of love of God. And that providential hand that, oh, I know we've talked about it in Saint school, but it is just overwhelming the application that would go with that if we really remembered it. And once again, 
the sins, right? That would go out the window. No fear, no worry. No condemnation. No condemnation, no anxiety to, to all of this. Things that I think tend to get us. I know things that get me. And it's a lack of trust and faith that the God of the Bible is the one who's running my life. And I need to remember that and enjoy that. It's so enjoyable when, they, when you know, we're um, commanded to bring God glory. What's the chief end of man? To give God glory and to enjoy him forever. I think this is a way to truly enjoy God in a different way than maybe we sometimes do on a day-to-day basis. You know, I'm looking at the last statement in the Heidelberg Confession and Catechism, and it says, indeed, all things, that reminds me of Romans 8, 28, all things come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. And so we see this in the contrast of this opulent Persian empire and and, and then the Jewish plight. Um, it, it's, it's just remarkable yeah. to see his hand at work. No, it is remarkable. And I hope that... Uh, this is a real feast for you in the next nine weeks. That as you read Esther, and if you get a chance, read chapter two. Every one of them, like the commentator said, is entertaining, fascinating, surprising. Wait a second, how could this be what's happening now? It just seems like it shouldn't be happening like that. And then God turns them together for good. Again, synergizes every single event that it would make um, us more like our Savior. Scott, could you pray that we would take this mindset and uh, run with it this sure. week? Sure, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful uh, again to gather here in the choir practice room and start a new book, start this wonderful book, the book of Esther, and uh, how fun it is just even this first week to, to talk about chapter one and uh, how your name is not even mentioned in the entire book. Uh, but that doesn't mean you're, you're not at work. Certainly you did that intentionally to teach us that when you and when we go through periods of our life that are seemingly ordinary and we may think, you know, where are you? Where is God in this? We need to be convinced that you are at work. You are always at work uh, for the good of your people and, and for your glory. And so I just pray that we would take that, that big application point home this week. Um, I think John Flavel said something about it. When we're observing providence or thinking about providence, it won't be long until we will observe a providence in our life. And so I just pray that the providence, your providence, would be central in our mind and our thinking and uh, even this week, help us to trust you, uh, no matter what may come, uh, whether it's great joys or difficulties or trials, that we would trust you, that you are always at work uh, for our good and for your glory. And uh, with that trust and with our increase in faith, uh, I pray that these sins, like Jerry said, would, would just flee from us. Sins of complaining just shouldn't be there at all. We should never, ever complain when we know that you are at work in our lives uh, for your glory and our good. And so I just pray for uh, increased faith in all of us uh, as we study this wonderful book of Esther and uh, pray for the service you'd be at work during the singing, during the preaching uh, to build up your people. And uh, as we take communion, may we be reminded of Christ's uh, sacrifice for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.